0: There are many parts of the Bible that people try to explain away. The, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the miracles of Jesus, the empty tomb, the fact that, that 40 different authors over 1,500 years could write a book with one storyline. But one part that is very, very hard to explain away is that in Isaiah 53, we have a, a very clear description of the life of Trial, death and burial of Jesus, written hundreds of years before he was born. Nobody today disputes that these words were written long before Jesus of Nazareth was born. Uh, you might have heard of of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there, there's a, a Dead Sea scroll from from two hundred years uh, before Christ, uh, which contains this. Uh, and uh, and as I say, the, the the words were written even earlier than than that. Uh, so th- these are words that are written before Jesus. No one can deny that, and yet they, they, he fulfills them in minute detail. Uh, so if Uh, if someone is here today and they are a a seeker or a skeptic uh, to examine the claims of Christianity in an intellectually honest way you need to reckon with this chapter but if you come to this chapter already trusting in the one that speaks of then be encouraged that if all the Bible has promised so far has come true then you can trust it For everything else, according to one scholar, the passage in front of us, uh, speaking the whole whole chapter of Isaiah fifty-three, may be called the most important text of the Old Testament. Uh, Someone else says that that there's been so much written on Isaiah fifty-three that uh, no one person could read it all in a lifetime. So obviously all we'll be able to, to do with the verses in front of us is, is skim the surface of this majestic passage. Uh, today we're going to pick out three things about our Saviour's death uh, from these verses to focus on. Uh, and the first one which we'll spend most of our time on is his substitution. His substitution. Uh, we'll... we'll uh, see this particularly in verses four and five though it's really what the whole chapter is about H- have you ever misjudged someone we feel terrible when we do but no misjudgment of another human being uh, no matter how wrong we were uh, and no matter how severe the consequences were uh, can ever compare to humanity's misjudgment of Jesus Christ The first three verses in this chapter tell us how Jesus was despised when he was on earth. Uh, And why was he despised? Well, verse 3, he was a man of sorrows and grief. Uh, When it came time for Jesus to go to the cross, even his disciples abandoned him. Boys and girls, you know that there were twelve disciples that Jesus had as special followers. One of those disciples betrayed Jesus, uh, but b- but all of them all of them left him uh, when he had to go to the cross. Uh, uh, and we looked at that the last time: how Jesus was despised, how he was hated. And and now in verse 4, in the the second half of the verse, we see another reason why Jesus was despised. Uh, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God uh, and afflicted. Uh, To to smite someone is to to strike them, to to hit them. Uh, Like Job's comforters, people looked at Jesus and thought, This man must have done something really bad for God to be punishing him like this. Uh, The word for stricken is used for God bringing down punishments like leprosy on people. So they look at Jesus and they think God is punishing him. Uh, But then at the start of verse 4 the penny finally drops. Those speaking realise that the very suffering the servant endured was actually the suffering that they deserved. They come to the startling realisation, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verses 4-6, to they're the middle of this great chapter and they're also the heart of the gospel itself. As it spelled out that what Jesus suffered, he suffered for us. He suffered not just as an example, but he suffered in our place. Boys and girls, do you know what a what a substitute is? If there's a a, a football match and a, a substitute comes on, it means that one player comes off uh, and another player goes on and Jesus on the cross was a substitute he took our place instead of us being punished by God Jesus was punished instead there's a big contrast in these verses between he on the one side and we us are on the other in verse four he has borne But we esteemed him stricken. In verse 5, he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, uh, with his beatings, we are healed. Verse 6, we have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The message is that he is suffering in our place. Notice that the same words sorrows and griefs that they're combined in verses 3 and in verse 4. In verse 3 the crowd are saying look at the sorrows and griefs of that man. Look at what he's suffering. We want nothing to do with him. But then in verse 4, a group of them come to the shocking realisation that those should have been our griefs. Those should have been our sorrows. We should have been those suffering instead of him. Can you imagine what it would have been like for someone who normally worked in the World Trade Centre? But on 9-11... For, for some reason, when those planes hit those towers, they weren't at work. Maybe some emergency had come up at, at home and they weren't able to get in that day. Maybe they, they they'd swapped uh, and someone else w- was working instead of them that day. And they were at home watching it unfold on TV. Uh, and surely as they did that, all that they would have been thinking was, that should have been me, that should have been me. Uh, and here as those speaking look at the cross uh, the cross they once despised each of them finally realises that should have been me Uh, maybe you need to realise that afresh this morning or, or even see it for the very first time that as this tsunami of God's anger hit his son you should have been the one standing there That wave was on course to hit you, but instead Jesus took not just the the force of it, but every last drop so that you could walk away untouched. The events of the cross are the final proof of how serious sin is. The final proof that breaking God's law isn't some small thing. In verse 5, Jesus was wounded or pierced. It's the, the strongest possible term for a violent and excruciating death that the language has. The next line says that he was crushed. And if he hadn't pushed you aside and stood there in your place as the wrath of God's weight fell on him, it would have crushed you instead. Our society laughs at sin. uh, But this is how deadly serious it is. Make no mistake, every sin uh, that you have ever committed and every sin that I have ever, ever committed will be punished. There is no such thing as a sin which will go unpunished. The only question is, has Jesus taken our punishment or will we take it instead? will the the full weight of God's wrath fall on you or are you trusting in Jesus to bear it in your place and if you are trusting in him then let this realization sink in that that it should have been you but it was Jesus instead Uh, how grateful we should be and how comforted we should be because this means that every sin that you have ever committed has been punished in him. Those sins which still haunt you perhaps, that you've, you've confessed, you've, you've repented of, but you can't quite forget them. They may haunt you, but they have been taken. The words in verses 3 and 4 are exactly the same. The exact griefs and sorrows that you should have been punished for are the exact griefs and sorrows that he bore. Amazingly in verse 5, every blow that you should have received falls on him. Every wound that was due to come to you pierced him instead. And in their place you get the peace and healing that he won on the cross. Sometimes you hear of people who who win a prize but donate it to charity. They win it uh, but they give the benefit of it to someone else. And it was the same on the cross. Everything that Jesus won, everything that he earned on the cross goes directly to his people. He didn't need the reward of a perfect life. He had a a perfect life. But we needed that reward and we're given it. And particularly as we come to, to sit around the Lord's table together, it's important to, to remember that this isn't simply an individual thing. Jesus didn't just die for you individually. He, he, he did die for you individually, which is, which is a tremendous thing, but, but not just for you. Uh, so it's not just the, the ugly things that you do uh, that Jesus has borne the penalty for. It's the ugly things in your fellow Christians' Those things that you see in your fellow Christians that that frustrate you, that grieve you, uh, that maybe even uh, make you want to give up on them. If you're trusting in Christ, he has taken their diseases as well as yours. And so we come and sit at the table as equals. As sinners, yes, but as forgiven sinners. And so at last, for those speaking in this chapter, all the centuries of animal sacrifices suddenly make sense. All the times that someone laid their hand on a lamb to symbolically transfer their sins to that lamb. It was fulfilled. And we can look at this passage and say, not simply behold my servant, as verse 13 starts, but behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world? There's much, much more that could be said about his substitution, but we move on secondly to look at his silence. His silence. Uh, We see this in verses seven and eight. One of the remarkable things about Isaiah's prophecy is that he doesn't just predict Jesus would die for his people but he also predicts that that death would be a legal judgment. It's one thing to predict that someone will get killed uh, but there are many ways that someone could die. They could be knocked down by a chariot, they could have a tower fall on them, they could be killed in a robbery, they could be part of a rebellion that a, a violent army puts down. But Isaiah says, verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Uh, And that that phrase, by oppression, is translated in some versions as from prison. uh, And the word often as the idea of being held against your will. Uh, And the word judgment is obviously a legal word. So to put it together in it its legal language, it may even be a stock legal phrase like saying that after arrest and sentence he was taken away. Or if oppression is the best translation of the first word, then the sentence on Jesus is being described as an oppressive judgment as, as one old Scottish theologian puts it, the forms of justice were to a certain extent observed while the grossest oppression was committed. But whatever way you take it, it's legal language. And of course we, we still recognise the phrase, take him away. By oppression and judgement he was taken away. It's what the judge says after sentence has been passed. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of people being sent away to their death. And in the New Testament, when Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king, they cry out, Away with him, take him away. And so we have here not simply Jesus' trial predicted, but the very words the crowd would shout as they hounded him to his death. So, Jesus' death would be a legal judgment, and yet it would be a trial like no other. There have been some famous trials throughout history. In 15, 1521, Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms to face the might of the Holy Roman Empire. In 1995, an estimated 100 million people tuned in as the jury delivered their verdict on the murder trial. Uh, where the the defendant was the American football star, O.J. Simpson. And some of the most memorable uh, words at those trials have been the words of the defendants or of their lawyers. For Luther, it was the words, Here I stand, I can do no other. In the trial of O.J. Simpson, it was a quip of his defence attorney about a blood-stained glove, which people remember. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Uh, Other defendants have made headlines by choosing to do without the services of a lawyer and defend themselves. But what is remarkable about Jesus' trial is that he consistently refuses to say anything in his defence. And again that's something that Isaiah had foretold. Uh, Verse 7 here, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that's exactly what happened, both before the Jews and the Romans. In John 18, in an informal hearing before Annas, the high priest's father in law, Jesus refused to answer questions about his disciples and his teaching. In Matthew 26, before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, Caiaphas demands Have you no answer to make? But Jesus remained silent. Have you ever been falsely accused of doing something, uh, boys and girls, maybe it was something in school that someone else did but, but you got the blame for it? Uh, for uh, for the rest of us have you ever been accused of, of doing things you never did of of saying something you never said of, of having motives in doing something that never even crossed your mind everything in you wants to stand up and say it's not true it, it wasn't me especially if you're handed the opportunity to defend yourself if someone says, well, did you do this? Is this true? So, so surely now is the time for Jesus to correct all these misconceptions about him, but, but he keeps silent. Then he comes before Pilate who says, do you not hear how many things I testify against you? But we read that he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate was a veteran of many different trials. He would have heard all sorts of defence arguments from the the calmly reasoned to the wild and ranting, as people pleaded for their lives. But Jesus gives no answer. And the Roman governor is greatly amazed. Unlike the Jewish high priest, Pilate wasn't a hostile judge. Pilate wanted to release him. All it would have taken was a word from Jesus. But he doesn't open his mouth. So why doesn't Jesus say something? Well at the deepest level Jesus didn't say anything in his defence. Because there was nothing to say. There is a sense in which Jesus stood there as guilty. Uh, Not in himself of course. uh, Of course not. Verse 9 it tells us he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth but he was on trial as our representative and he bore our guilt by his silence he was accepting the guilt of the charges on our behalf and so he doesn't cry out father these sins are not mine instead he accepts your guilt and he accepts mine he acknowledges his father's just judgment of his people's sins And so as Robert Murray McShane once said when preaching on this passage Christ's silence should be strong consolation for you because if if his silence was an acknowledgement that his sufferings were just that, that it wouldn't be just for you to suffer for the same sins. McShane says he was silent and opened not his mouth when wrath was poured out upon him but he will cry aloud if wrath be poured out upon you. The same sense of justice that led to his silence as he was condemned will lead to him crying out on your defence on the day of judgment. So whenever you think of Jesus' silence, let it be a reminder that he accepted the flood of God's wrath that should have been poured out on you. And let it also be a reminder that the one who kept silent when facing God's judgment will be the one who in future will not keep silent but will speak out in your defence. As believers we have an accuser in Satan, he's always accusing us but we also have an advocate, one who speaks in our defence. So, we've seen his substitution, we've seen his silence. Thirdly and finally, we have his grave, or, or if you want another S word, his, his sepulchre. Uh, so, thirdly, his grave or his sepulchre. Have you ever thought about the fact that, that there never should have been a tomb? You, you know, people uh, talk about the empty tomb, but, but there should never ha- have been a tomb. In the sense that the bodies of criminals, uh, even if they were granted a burial, would have just been thrown into a common grave. And sure enough, Isaiah predicts in verse nine that God's servant would make his grave with the wicked. That is, that he would be identified with the wicked in his death. And that was true of Jesus. He, he didn't die an honorable death, but but that of the lowest sort of criminal. And again, our text emphasizes that this shouldn't have happened. Verse 9, although he had done no violence. On top of that, we read at the end of verse 9 that there was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Uh, The word for for violence is a word that's used a a number of times in Genesis 6 to describe the world before the flood. It it is characteristic of mankind, but Jesus was different. And and the two phrases done, no no violence and no deceit in his mouth, they they sum up Jesus' life, his actions and his words. uh, They would be pure and above reproach. Who else in history could it be describing? Certainly not not me or you. Jesus is the only one who ever lived up to this picture of perfection. And yet he makes his grave with the wicked. Do you remember Balaam, the the, the false prophet in uh, the book of Numbers? And he, he can't help speaking what God says, and God tells him, it. and He says that, the, "Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his." Now like Jesus should never have died at all. But, but if there was anyone who ever should have been allowed to die the death of the upright, it should have been him. But instead, he died the death of the wicked, that we might die the death of the upright. We don't deserve to die the death of the upright. Uh, We don't deserve to die at peace with God. But Jesus has died the death we deserve. So if your trust is in him, you can be sure that you will die the death of the upright. And go immediately into his presence. So Jesus died the death of the wicked. But there's something more, uh, because Isaiah goes on, and with a rich man in his death, Isaiah's prophecy is very specific. The the wicked is plural, but a rich man is singular. So Jesus in his death would be associated with many who were wicked, but with one who was rich. And on on the face of it, the prophecy makes no sense how... uh, how can someone when they die be associated both with the wicked and with a rich man? Surely when someone dies they are either dishonoured or, or honoured. Uh, surely it can't be both. And anyway, how could a condemned criminal be associated with a rich man and his death? If it wasn't for the New Testament we wouldn't be able to make sense of this. But we read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. 700 years before it happened, we have another exact prophecy of the circumstances of Jesus' death. And it's there to encourage your faith. And there's something more to it than just a fulfilment of prophecy. Uh, Surely it's also a hint that Jesus would be vindicated. Being rich in the Bible is not necessarily a good thing or or a bad thing. uh, But in the eyes of the people it was a sign of honour. And in the Old Testament it could be a sign of God's blessing. Uh, So the fact that, that a rich man would take note of Jesus' death is very significant. It's telling us that Jesus, even in his death, would be honoured. And that is God's verdict on the death of the Son. Uh, Despised by the crowds, uh, but honoured by God. We have a hint here of how the story will end. This servant of God who has been ignored and despised, who's been bruised and battered, who's been mocked and who's died the death of the wicked, even on the day when he is most dishonoured by men, he is honoured by his Father. And so today we can look forward as well as back. Because one day he's coming back no longer as a man of sorrows, no longer to be dishonoured, no longer to be oppressed, no longer to keep silent. And because he identified with the wicked in his first coming, we will share his glory at his second coming. So we've looked at his substitution, his silence and his sepulcher, and all for you. As you sit here this morning, you can know that the price has been paid And he wants you to remind you of these things to keep you going. And that as he identified with you in his death, that you might identify with him in your life. Amen. Well, let's respond to what the Lord Jesus has done for us by turning to the last part of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, part 22a, starting in page 315. Psalm 119, 22a. In the, the last verse over the page, we acknowledge that like sheep we've gone astray. And yet the good news of the Bible is that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because he, he kept silent for us, accepting our guilt, he now speaks for us to his Father. Because of that, let us also speak for to and for him verse 2 oh let my lips pour forth your praise oh let my tongue sing of your word for your commands are righteousness so psalm 119 part 22a will stand to sing praise